Well, for the last six months, we've been studying the book of Revelation. We've plowed chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've left few stones unturned. But today, we're taking the opposite approach. Buckle up your seatbelt for a Bible study flyover. I plan to overview all 22 chapters of Revelation in just 45 minutes. You can put me on the clock starting now. In fact, I'm going to do better than that. I'll start by summing up Revelation in one word. In fact, it's not even a word. Here is the last book of the Bible in a single sound. There it is. Revelation is the lion's roar. Look at the world today, and it's a jungle out there. But Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king of the jungle. He will roar and he will reign. Notice verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word translated revelation is apocalypse. To the Greeks, it meant an unveiling or an uncovering. Think of a famous artist debuting a sculpture. The museum's curator, he rips the fabric back, revealing the masterpiece. Well, this is the revelation. Jesus Christ is alive and well, but we don't see his excellence, for he's hidden behind a heavy canvas that separates the spiritual realm from the tangible world. And yet in Revelation, John rips away the veil. He reveals Jesus in all of his splendor. Hey, before we're done this morning, John will paint a whole array of provocative detail. We'll talk about falling stars and four horsemen and hailstones and beasts and marks and armies and demons and the whore of Babylon. But remember the theme of this book. As one author writes, the theme isn't 666. It's holy, holy, holy. The point of the revelation is not the unleashing of judgment. It's the unveiling of of Jesus. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. This Greek word translated shortly is tachos. A tachometer doesn't measure the speed or the distance. It measures the immediate burst. You see, the New Testament writers, they all assumed that they were living in the last days. With the coming of Jesus, their Messiah, and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, God had revved up the engines. But what happens when he pops the clutch? What comes next? And the answer is Jesus. Not as he was, but in all his exalted glory and authority. Revelation shows us that heaven is focused on Jesus the lion-hearted, and all humanity needs to be preoccupied with him as well. Every U.S. president poses for an official portrait. And at the end of chapter 1, John paints a portrait of Jesus. In verse 13, he sees Jesus in the midst of seven lampstands or seven churches. And this is why I'm so gung-ho on the church. All churches, but especially our church. Sure, we consist of the flawed and the fallible, but Jesus still walks among us. If you don't hang out with the church, you're going to miss out on Jesus. While Jesus was on earth, John spent three years with him. But in chapter 1, 
verse 13 to 16, John sees him now very, very differently. The tunic the soldiers gambled away is replaced by a royal robe. His carpenter, carpenter's belt has been swapped for a gold priestly band. His shaggy black Jewish hair is now as white as wool. His once brown eyes are aflame with passion. The clay feet of his humanity has been replaced with the strong bronze feet of deity. The voice that once reasoned now roars like a waterfall. It drowns out all other opinions. The mouth that taught forgiveness now slays like a sword. The face that conveyed grace now radiates with the glory of the sun. It's 90 AD. The emperor Domitian has banished John to a labor camp on the rock island called Patmos. John's future seems hopeless, dismal, but not so fast. For what's next for John is what's next for us. The living Lord Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. Jesus Christ is still the hope of both today and all eternity. Chapter 1 verse 19 is the key. It outlines the rest of the book. John writes, Write these things which, which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now what he's seen is chapter 1. Jesus in all of his glory. John was a church leader. Thus, the things which are, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, is an evaluation of seven churches representing 2,000 years of church history. And the things which will take place after this, or chapters 4 to 22, is what will happen after the church is in heaven, how God will redeem a runaway planet. Chapter 1 is all about Jesus, not as a humble Galilean carpenter, but as he is today, king of glory. But beginning in chapter 2, Jesus dictates through John letters to seven churches in Asia. At the time, there were hundreds of Christian congregations. Why just seven? Why these seven? And why in this order? Here's why. These seven represent the church as a whole. Individually, there are seven types of believers. Ecclesiastically, there are seven types of local congregations. And historically, over the last 2,000 years, there have been seven stages of church history. All these insights get packed into these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Ephesus was the first stop on the old Roman postal route that circled the region. But in church history, it represented the early church. And Jesus' first letter indicates how quickly their love for him had waned. Yes, they served. They endured. They sniffed out false doctrine. But verse 4 reveals their fatal fault. Jesus says, you have left your first love. There was motion in this church, but no devotion. There was a lot of performance, but little passion. And Jesus prescribes a cure. Verse 5. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Recall the initial joy of your salvation, that feeling of forgiveness. Repent of having been distracted. Repeat the first habits. Dig into the word again. Worship with passion. Willingly witness. Don't wait until you feel like it. Just do it. 
Did you know it's easier to act yourself into a feeling than to feel yourself into an action? Do the first works and you'll regain that first love. Well, Smyrna was the martyred church of the second and third centuries, the persecuted church. Between 65 and 312 A.D., Rome martyred 5 million believers in Jesus. And Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. On earth, the church of Smyrna was poor, but in God's eyes, she was rich. Pergamos was the center of idolatry. Verse 13 refers to it as where Satan's throne is. It was a tough place to be a Christian. The temptation in Pergamos was to compromise. Pergamos tried to be like the world in order to win the world. Historically, Pergamos was the church of the Roman emperors that tried to Christianize pagan practices. But rather than convert Romans, it corrupted the church. Next is the tolerant church. Pergamos compromised, but the church in Theratyra, they got cozy and comfortable with compromise. Like the Old Testament's Queen Jezebel, this church conjured up religious sanctions to excuse their spiritual compromise. Here's a church that went to bed with the world. It's no surprise that Jesus says to this church, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. The word sardis means escaping ones. This church is often linked to the Protestant Reformation, the church that escaped the pollutions of Rome. Sardis is the Orthodox church, but sadly, it had a dead orthodoxy. In chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This church carried the name of the Reformers like Lutherans, but they lacked the faith and fire of Luther. They're told to strengthen the things which remain. The church of Philadelphia was the church of which Jesus had nothing negative to say. It was the church of the open door, an opportunistic church. Philadelphia represents the evangelicalism of the last two centuries. This church had little strength, but she used what she had to the glory of God. Philadelphia kept God's word, refused to deny His name. Here's a church that we all should emulate. And the last of these seven churches was Laodicea. Sadly, a church that looks a lot like today's modern church. Neither hot nor cold, only lukewarm. Like a room temperature cup of coffee, the Lord spews her out of His mouth. This is what Jesus does with the complacent church. Verse 20 sums up the sad state of Laodicea. Jesus is on the outside of this church. He's locked out of His own church, knocking at the door. And yet He promises, If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Here's my suggestion. Let's give Jesus back His church. And let's let it start in our own hearts. Chapter 4. Are we going fast enough for you? Chapter 4 begins, after these things. What things? Well, for two chapters now, the subject has been on the church. Now John takes us beyond the church age. John, a member of the church, writes in chapter 4, verse 1, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. This sounds like Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When the church age is over, a trumpet blows and the church gets caught up to heaven to be with Jesus. Here John's experience parallels that future event. And God gives John a glimpse of the heavenly scene. Hey, don't you dare think of heaven as a cloud bank or as white halls or as marble stair steps. No, no. Heaven is a kaleidoscope of color. In chapter 4, verse 3, John sees God dressed in ruby red robes that sparkle like diamonds. Lightning bolts dart from his emerald green throne. A rainbow stretches overhead and flickering flames dance on top of a crystal sea. Can you imagine? The colors on earth will all pale in comparison to the brilliance of the heavenly hues. Everything in heaven will pop. Around John's throne, around God's throne, John sees angelic creatures. And he sees 24 elders representing the church of all the ages. And guess what these elders do with the crowns on their head? They cast them at Jesus' feet. Did you know we'll do the same with any rewards we might receive? We too will cast them at His feet. And then we'll all sing the song in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Realize, the priority of heaven is the worship of God. Heaven is a party of praise. And heaven will do that for which we were created. Will bring pleasure to God. Chapter 5 is a pivotal passage. Verse 1 tells us, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the book that God holds is the title deed of the universe. A real estate deal is about to be brokered in heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He then gave them to mankind to work and rule. But man sinned. He fumbled away his authority. And guess who jumped on the ball? Possession to Satan. Today, Satan has run of the planet. The mess we're in is not God's fault. Blame it on satanic management. But God has plans to redeem or to buy back this earth. Rules for redemption were embedded in the Old Testament law. If a family lost its property, they could buy it back. And John understands what he sees. Mankind needs a relative who can buy back this world that was lost. This is why John weeps. He sees no one worthy to open the scroll. That is, until one of the elders steps in. And John knows you should always listen to your elders. He says in chapter 5, verse 5, One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus is the lion. He is the king of the jungle. And he alone is worthy to retake custody of God's creation. It's interesting, the elder introduces Jesus as the lion. But in verse 6, when John turns his head to look, he sees a lamb 
as though it had been slain. At his first coming, Jesus humbled himself. He became a sacrificial lamb. He paid the ransom for our sin. But Jesus is coming again. This time, he'll flex his muscle. He'll roar like a lion. He'll subdue the jungle and take possession of all that belongs to him. And this is what the rest of Revelation is about. How Jesus prized the world from the hands of rebellious squatters and returns it to God's authority. The scroll that John saw, this title deed to the universe, was sealed with seven wax seals. And the opening of that scroll was the equivalent of possessing the property. But as Jesus opens this scroll, he breaks the seals. And in chapter 6, with each snap of the seals, a judgment pops on earth. In fact, from chapter 6 to 19, 21 judgments get unleashed. Sort of like a 21-gun salute. But it's a salute of judgment. Seven seals are broken. Seven trumpets blast. Seven bowls slosh over with God's righteous wrath. The first four seals in chapter 6 reveal the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. They ride onto the stage of history, their hooves kicking up destruction. The white horse represents a false peace. The rider is the Antichrist. He deceives mankind with lying promises. The second horse is fiery red, the horse of war. The third horse is black, which speaks of famine. The fourth horse is pale with death. Through these horsemen, a quarter of the world's population will die. If it happened today, the death toll would be about one and a half billion people. Hey, you don't have folks deceived and fighting and starving and dying without some innocent casualties. And that's what the fifth seal reveals. John sees souls under the altar in heaven. They've been martyred for their faith in Christ. And now they cry out for God's vengeance. Hey, they echo our cry today. Don't you ever cry out for vengeance and justice? I do. Hey, this world is out of order. Wrongs go unpunished. The innocent get preyed upon. Politicians pad their pockets. We long for the day when someone will free the oppressed and punish the evil. This is the cry behind all of the great tribulation. I mean, do you really think that God just sits in some heavenly recliner and ignores what's going on in the world? Do you think that? When people mock His name and break His law and violate each other and shake their fist in His face, do you think He doesn't see? That He doesn't care? I promise you He cares. After these martyrs cry out for vengeance, the sixth seal strikes a devastating blow. Read chapter 6, verse 12. A great earthquake. The sun flames out. The moon turns blood red. Asteroids and meteorites pelt the planet like acorns falling from a windblown tree. The sky rolls up like a runaway window shade. Verse 14 sums it up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The physical universe will come unglued. And in its wake, rebels run to the caves and try to hide in the rocks. They'll say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, 
For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They'll learn once and for all that when it comes to God, you can run, but you can't hide. And notice the provocative phrase in verse 16. The wrath of the Lamb. A lamb isn't really known as a hostile, angry animal, is it? But this one can be. The Lamb of God will roar like a lion. He will pare his claws and he will attack a rebel planet. When John saw judgments earmarked for mankind, I'm sure his reaction was to cover his eyes. This was a horror upon horrors. And that's why mercifully, the book of Revelation shifts vistas back and forth from earth to heaven, from judgment to glory, from devastation to celebration. The awful reality of God's wrath is balanced with the glory of His grace. And that's why chapter 7 takes us back to heaven. It's now the eye of the storm. Winds of judgment are howling on earth. But John sees angels standing at the four corners of the globe. East, west, north, and south. Holding back the winds. There's a pause. A selah. So that God can now seal 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Now this is so stunning. God is angry with the inhabitants of planet earth. He's angry with the sinful rebels. It's time to clean house. But even in the midst of his awful judgments, even in the midst of his anger, God still loves people. He still cares. So much so that he now recruits an end-time army to preach the gospel and extend his grace even to hardened sinners. The sixth seal unleashed is such devastation that chapter 6 closed by asking the question, who is able to stand? Well, chapter 7 answers that question. The 144,000, they're able to stand. And those who receive the message that they preach, they're able to stand as well. John sees this crowd, a crowd in white robes. Verse 14 identifies them as ones who came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. God even wipes away their tears. You see, even in the great tribulation, people will still get saved. It's a testimony to God's amazing and enduring grace. In chapter 8, we're back to earth. Seven angels put a trumpet of judgment to their lips and blow a long blast. A firestorm falls from heaven and scorches a third of the earth. A burning mountain poisons a third of the oceans. A falling star contaminates a third of the fresh water. Somehow a third of our solar exposure gets reduced. And after the first four trumpets, God sends an angel to prepare us for the remaining three. He travels throughout the heavens shouting, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. One day, heaven is going to throw down on planet earth. Last week, February 15th, A 55-foot-wide meteor streaked through the sky at 44,000 miles an hour. Did you see this? It exploded over the Ural Mountains in Russia. 
its force was 40 times the bomb at Hiroshima. That same day, by the way, an asteroid 30 meters wide passed so close to the earth that it slipped under the orbit of our man-made satellites, the closest flyby ever of an asteroid that size. Two cosmic misses in the very same day. And here's what I thought. Wow. I wonder if God isn't firing a warning shot across our bow. It was a message of love. It was a valentine from God. That we need to repent before it's too late. For one day soon the shots will no longer be warnings. In chapter 9, a Pandora's box of evil opens. Smoke and ash and demonic locusts are unleashed from the bottomless pit. It's hard to read about this, this event, let alone experience it. They begin to sting and torture mankind. In verse 6, men attempt suicide, but death takes a vacation. The sixth trumpet rallies a 200 million man army who marched to Armageddon through a dried up Euphrates. God is assembling the nations for the grand finale. In chapter 10, verse 1, John sees a mighty angel straddling the sea and the land. He has a little book open in his hand. The angel is Jesus. I believe he is. And he's holding what he had in chapter 5, the title deed to the universe. But now the seals are broken. It's an open scroll. God's kingdom has almost come to earth. That's when John is told to eat the scroll. Eat the scroll? Really? John eats it. He chews on this idea of a messianic takeover, of Jesus' return. And oh, how it excites him. John's thinking, wow, evil will be defeated. Jesus will be on the throne. We'll be living in a paradise. The thought of God's kingdom is sweet at first. But then as he digests its implications, he's reminded of the plight of those lost without Christ. The judgments he's seen, the hell he will see, and it creates a bitterness. The revelation realization is sweet, then it's sour. And that's the reaction that you and I should have to this book, the book of Revelation. We all long for Jesus in a righteous world, do we not? Everyone wants sin to be dealt with once and for all. But to do that, God has to judge sinners. And that means people that we know and love. See, you can't address sin without dealing with sinners. Thus, we as believers need to get busy sharing the gospel. The revelation is sweet, but it's sour. So far, this time on earth is full of action. But there are also some actors in the drama. Good guys and bad guys. God's team includes the 144,000 and two witnesses discussed in chapter 11. They work miracles like Elijah and Moses. They testify of Jesus in the temple. This implies, by the way, the rebuilding of the temple. It could be that the Antichrist brokers a deal that allows the temple and the mosque that currently exists to stand side by side. Perhaps this is why the angel tells John that the outer court is given to the Gentiles. Revelation 11 brings up a timeline. In Daniel 9, 
God predicted a final seven-year period in the history of human government. Revelation 6 through 19 unfolds during this final seven years. And chapter 11 focuses in on the midpoint of that period. God will remove His protection from His two servants. We're told Antichrist murders them in the streets. He leaves their bodies there in the, in the plaza for all the world to celebrate. For three and a half days, CNN broadcasts live. Wolf Blitzer stands there by their dead bodies. Then suddenly, God resurrects His servants. They ascend to heaven as an earthquake rocks Jerusalem. Sadly though, it's only just one more unanswered wake-up call. Revelation 12 is full of both good guys and bad guys. The woman is Israel. The dragon is Satan. The stars are angels. The male child birthed by the woman is Jesus Christ. Verse 5 identifies him as he who will rule all nations with a rod of iron and was caught up to God and to his throne. For the rest of chapter 12, John plays the role of a war correspondent as he reports on the final throes in this age-old battle between God and Satan. According to verse 7, midway through this last seven years, war erupts in heaven. Michael the archangel gives Satan the boot. I would imagine this battle makes Star Wars look like a dart throw. But now Satan gets desperate, having been kicked out of heaven. And he immediately attacks the woman or Israel. You see, Satan knows if you want to irk a father, just pick on his kids. This is why anti-Semiticism is always satanic. Throughout history, Satan has plotted ways to strike out at the Jews. He does so here. The armies of Antichrist chase the Jews from Jerusalem into the wilderness. And in verse 16, God protects them. The genocide squad is thwarted by an earthquake. It's a bad day for Satan. He gets defeated in heaven and he gets routed on earth. Revelation 13 brings double trouble. Satan employs the beastie boys, a demonic duo with occult powers, the first beast is the Antichrist. He's a political leader who rules the world. His ten horns represent a ten-nation confederacy that catapults him to power. You know, today, the world is longing for a leader. An early organizer of the European community, a man named Henry Speck, he once commented, we don't want another committee. We want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people. Send us a man, whether he be God or a devil. Send him. Well, the world is going to get its devil. The second beast in Revelation 13 is the false prophet. A, relig a religious leader who gives ecclesial sanction and support to the ambitions of the Antichrist. He constructs an idol and he blackmails the world. This past week I was at Kroger picking up a prescription and the girl at the counter, she had a little sticker on the back of her right hand. It was a little barcode sticker. And she was using it to log on to the computer to identify herself. And so she'd scan her hand, you know, in order to get onto the computer. And it reminded me of the scheme that these beastie boys will concoct. They'll seize control of a one-world government and will require everyone to take a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. It's a number. Six, six, six. 
to buy groceries or to get health care or to fill up your tank, you'll need this mark. Hey, it's pledge allegiance to the beast or starve. Now that the church is in heaven, God uses angels as his messengers. And in Revelation 14, three angels buzz the earth. The first preaches the gospel. The second declares it's the earth's destruction. And the third warns of this mark. Verse 11 describes the plight of those who ignore the warning. It says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Don't you dare think there's no such thing as eternal punishment. Chapter 14 closes with Jesus fulfilling the parable he told in Matthew 13. You remember the wheat and the weeds, they grow up together until the harvest time. Well, now the harvest has come. It's time to weed out the world. Jesus is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. He's about to crush the rebels in the winepress of his wrath, which sets the stage for Revelation 15 and 16, the final seven plagues. John sees seven bowls brimming, sloshing over with divine wrath. The most intense of God's judgments are next. Hey, these aren't bowl games. God is serious about sin. God don't play. Foul and loathsome sores. Contamination. Solar flares. People in the dark, blistered and bleeding. The bowl judgments are global warming on steroids. The sixth bowl sets the stage for the final showdown at Armageddon. Demons draw out the eastern armies. The seventh bowl, it ravages the planet. You could call it shock and awe. Mountains are leveled. Islands erased. In chapter 16, verse 21, the world gets pelted with 100-pound hailstones. You remember in the Old Testament, blasphemy was punishable by stoning. Here God stones a blasphemous world. All the while, Jesus is saddling up. But before he comes... John has another vignette or a sidebar to the story. You see, the Antichrist, he deceives the world by religion and by commerce. And John shows how God judges both. Two Babylons appear in chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17, verse 5, introduces Babylon, the mother of harlots. This is the religious system that sanctions the beast. This is the church after the true church is gone. Oh, it's a tolerant religion. All paths lead to God. The whore's only creed is believe in anything but Jesus. The harlot comes to prominence riding on the back of the beast. She scratches his back. He scratches her back. But in the end, Antichrist turns on this religious system. Once he declares himself God, he dumps the harlot. But two Babylons bring to power the beast. The other is commercial, a global economy. People and nations will compromise conviction for prosperity. In the end, though, Babylon goes belly up. Chapter 18, verse 17 tells us, In one hour, such great riches come to nothing. Hate to tell you, but earthly treasure always comes to nothing. Verse 10 tells us, her mourners see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. It could be that Babylon gets nuked. 
In chapter 18, citizens on earth mourn the fall of the world systems. But four times in the first four verses of Revelation 19, heaven rejoices. They shout, Hallelujah! Chapter 19 ends with a battle scene. But it begins with a bridal suite. While judgment occurs on earth, heaven hosts a wedding. Chapter 19, verse 7, should remind all believers to save the date. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife was made, has made herself ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for your wedding day? Well, the last half of chapter 19 is the moment creation has been awaiting. The Prince of Peace is no pacifist. In Revelation 19, Jesus and His bride go to war Here is the climactic conclusion of the war between God and Satan. The armies stage at Armageddon, but other scriptures teach us that the fighting occurs in the sky over Jerusalem. The beast tries to thwart Jesus' return, but in verse 11, heaven opens again. But not to let the church in, not this time. It's to let God's warrior out. It's been a long time since this wicked world has seen the Lamb. What a surprise to hear him roar like a lion. He came the first time to save, but he comes the second time to slaughter. There's no donkey ride this time. He's charging on a white horse, a war horse. He's faithful and true. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head sits many crowns. His robe is splattered with the blood of his enemies that he slayed in battle. His name is called the Word of God. He brings the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty. Verse 16 is the climax of John's description. He says of Jesus, He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus destroys the beast with His breath. It's not much of a fight. All Jesus has to do is just breathe on him and bowl him over. You could call it a blowout. Chapter 19 opens and closes with a feast. After the battle of Armageddon, God invites the birds and the scavengers to feast on the corpses of the rebel casualties. Jesus captures the Antichrist and the false prophet and tosses them into the lake of fire. The war is finally over. Oh, blood has been shed. And lives have been lost. The earth is in shambles and now in need of restoration. But this is what it took to end the coup. The earth is now under new management. And Jesus will restore all that sin has ruined. And that's what chapter 20 is about. The first act of Jesus' new administration is to chain the devil in hell. The tempter is jailed for a thousand years. For a millennium. World peace will finally become a reality. What every beauty pageant contestant has asked for over all the years will finally be fulfilled. World peace. At last, Jesus establishes an earthly kingdom. He rules in righteousness. He rejuvenates the ecosystem. The fallen planet is returned to a garden paradise. Finally, our prayer is fully answered. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 4 tells us the tribulation saints will rule with Jesus, but we learn throughout the New Testament that we will too. 
If you're faithful on earth, you'll rule with Jesus in this kingdom. A strange mixture will make up Christ's kingdom. Mortal men will live alongside resurrected believers. Folks who survived the great tribulation will repopulate the planet. They and their kids will retain a sin nature and will be in charge of their discipleship. Having known firsthand the folly of sin, we'll have lots to teach them, won't we? Toward the end of the millennium, chapter 20 takes a bizarre twist. Verse 3 says of Satan, After these things, he must be released for a little while. And what does he do? Has he learned any lessons? Nope. He stirs up another rebellion. This guy is incorrigible. And God allows this for an important reason. After living in a perfect world for a thousand years, at their first opportunity to rebel, man jumps at the chance. It just proves once and for all that man is a sinner by nature, not a victim of a poor environment. His problem is not a lack of money or education or culture. We are sinners at heart. That's our problem. Well, Jesus puts down this revolt in quick order. He throws Satan into the lake of fire, his permanent punishment. And chapter 20 closes with the awesome vision of God's great white throne. In verse 11, we're told that before this throne, the elements melt away. The physical universe disappears so that all that remains of this former world are you and God. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Understand, the Christian sin is judged at the cross. That's why this great white throne is for people who've never trusted in Jesus. It's not for Christians. And here, because they haven't trusted in Jesus, they're judged by their own merits, their own good works. And sadly, they don't have a leg to stand on. Why? Because in the eyes of God, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Everyone whose name isn't written in the book of life, as well as death and Hades, are now thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 14 reads, This is the second death. Physical death is the first death. The lake of fire is the second death. That's why it's been said, born once, die twice. But born twice, die only once. That's why we all need to be born again. Which makes way for a new heaven and a new earth. This is the subject of the last two chapters of the Revelation. Did you know that this universe is a no deposit, no return venture? God has no plans to recycle. The thousand years is necessary for, for it is God's victory to redeem all that has been damaged. But the material world we live in was never intended to be our home. God has a more glorious world awaiting. Jesus is building that city right now. He's preparing a place for us. And John sees it. He sees heaven in chapter 21, verse 2. He calls it the New Jerusalem. It's coming like a bride walking down the aisle. I've never seen a groom disappointed on his wedding day. 
And likewise, heaven will fulfill your wildest imaginations. You won't be disappointed. I love verse 4. It talks of heaven. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. And as you read about it, this new Jerusalem, it's huge. There's plenty of room for all believers through all the ages. Hey, there's even room for you. The city has gates, and it has a street, and it has a river, and it has a tree with fruit. We'll regain access to the tree of life. Now that we're redeemed, we're invited to live forever. We'll work in heaven, but without the curse. We'll eat, but without the calories. In chapter 22, verse 4, reveals heaven's highest blessing. They shall see his face. We've reached the summit now of human experience. We shall see the face of God. John wraps up the revelation with an invitation. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And that's how we'll close. The roar of the lion ends with the invitation to come. Please come.